Hi there, Pastor Tom here. I just wanted to give you a little heads up that the volume uh, for the scripture reading is a little bit lowered because of a microphone issue, but as soon as it gets to my preaching, it returns to a regular level. Um, so sit back, listen to the scripture reading as best you can, and then I'll offer my comments on the text. to its building. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign excuse me, of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you are standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea fly, flee to the mountains. Let no one on their housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloaks. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out, or here he is in the inner room, do not believe it. 
For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately, after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that the summer is near. Even so, you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Thank you, Rena. I think that's the longest scripture reading I've ever made anyone do. And I was grateful that she did it. It's Christmas almost here. It's the question burning in every child's mind. We know it. You kids can't wait to tear into those presents. Um, of course... We want you to know that Christmas isn't really about the presents, that it's about Jesus. But I will say this. Your restless anticipation to open presents offers us a vivid picture, a tangible replica of how eager the Jewish people were for their Messiah to be revealed. In Jesus' day, they expected the Messiah to deliver them from the Romans and establish God's kingdom on earth. And we call this season Advent because we believe that Jesus is that Messiah and that he did come. Obviously, things haven't shaped up quite like the Jews of Jesus' time were expecting. The Romans weren't overthrown in the time of Jesus. And even up to our own day, we see that God's kingdom is yet to be fully established on earth. We still have disease, war, and all other kinds of evil among us. We are now looking to an approaching day when Jesus will come again to bring his work of restoration to completion in a second advent. And we can believe this because Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead after being crucified, and he has promised us that he will come again. Anyone who really believes this should be eager for Jesus to return, to finally make the world right. We should be just as excited as the Jews in the first century were, as they were looking forward to some of the same promises that we're also looking forward to being fulfilled today. In Matthew 24, we get a glimpse of this excitement 
among the disciples. And this whole discourse stems from a comment that the disciples make as they're walking by the structures of the Temple Mount. They comment to Jesus, do you see all these things? They, they tell him, look at all these buildings. Look how great they are. And Jesus, in response to them, says, do you see all these things? He asks, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, you see, this is, there's the temple, its surrounding structure. Imagine how incredible that must have sounded to the disciples, that this magnificent structure was going to be thrown down, that not one stone was going to be left upon another. Jesus is saying something catastrophic is going to happen. And it must be something pretty significant because, you know, in our own day, we can imagine things getting destroyed pretty easily if someone planted a bomb or something like that. But to tear this thing apart... You'd have to bring in an army, and it would, it would be a whole thing. And so naturally, you know, in response to this comment, the disciples are pretty curious. And so they go along their way, and they make their way to the Mount of Olives. And there, some of the disciples approach Jesus and ask him for some further explanation. In Mark 13, it says that it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew who specifically approach Jesus and, um, and here in Matthew, um, they ask, Tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, it's interesting, as we look across um, the various Gospels accounts, we see that the framing of this question um, is a little bit narrower in, in Mark and in Luke. Um, when we look at Luke, um, we see that the question is really specifically focused on the destruction of the temple. He said, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to take place? We see the same thing um, in Mark as well that's really focused on the temple. When we're looking at Matthew, though, the question is a little bit more expansive. It looks at when will this happen? the destruction of the temple, and then also what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so these are the, the two questions. Let me get them up there. Two questions are this, that you need to keep in mind as we go through this passage, that Jesus is responding to. When will this happen, the destruction of the temple, and also what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now at the outset, I want to highlight something that appears at the end of our passage here um, that maybe you noticed. That's verse 34, um, where it says, Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all th these things have happened. Now, this verse has posed a challenge to a lot of readers of Scripture, to believers specifically, because it seems as though Jesus is saying all these things are going to happen in the lifetime of the generation that Jesus is speaking to, the time in which he is living. And, um, and some people in reading these verses have come under the impression that Jesus is talking about his second coming, his final return. 
Now, obviously, Jesus did not come back in his final return in the first century A.D. So there's been three different options that Christian interpreters have put forward. Um, there's a fourth option. People who are secularists would say Jesus got it wrong. He thought that a return was going to happen in the first century A.D., and it didn't happen. Um, but there's no reason why we have to conclude that. So there's three different Christian interpretations. The first one, um, I would say, is out of bounds. It doesn't make sense with what the rest of Scripture has to say, that Jesus secretly came back um, in the first century. Um, so there's some Christian interpreters that would say that. I would just say there's a lot of things wrong with that, and you shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't uh, arrive at that interpretation. And then there's two others. Um, the second is... Um, that what Jesus is talking about here is birth pain signs. And this is drawing from language that appears here in the text. Um, that were manifested in the life of this generation, um, but that we await Jesus' final return. So Jesus is talking about some significant things that are going to be happening that are indicating kind of the signs of the times, um, but it's not indicating that Jesus is coming back then. The last interpretive option is that these signs, along with Christ's return, await fulfillment. That this generation actually refers to a future generation. Um, now, I'm not going to get into it this morning because it would take us all morning to consider every possible detail in this passage. Um, but I'll just say that I, I'm pretty confident that when Jesus is referring to this generation, he is in fact talking to his peers, his contemporaries with whom he's living. Um, we've seen this when he's talking to the Pharisees and, uh, and just generally critiquing the Jews that he's speaking to, referring to them as, as this generation. So Jesus seems to be talking about something that's going to be happening in the lifetime of the disciples. Now, as we're going through these first verses here, verses 1 through 14, and I apologize, there was a little mix-up in the original presentation, but I'm pretty sure it's um, rectified here. In the first 14 verses here, we see Jesus um, warning his disciples against over-anticipation. He says there's going to be lots of wars, there's going to be famines, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be a lot of crazy stuff that happens. But then we see in verse 6, he says the end is still to come. The end isn't here yet. Um, we see in Luke 21.9, uh, that Luke records him as saying, then the end will not come right away. Um, and then we see in verse 8 how he says, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Um, so this is interesting. Jesus, Jesus knows that his disciples are eager for, um, for the kingdom to be established. And they're looking for signs. He says, you're going to see a lot of things. And they're significant but that they, they are not indicating that the end is here. In verse 9, he talks about how they will personally face persecution, how they will be personally hated. And in verse 12, he talks about how false prophets are going to emerge and how the love of most will grow cold. And this is really kind of getting to the point um, that he's really driving at, which is he wants to warn his disciples against being deceived because they're going to see all these things happening and in their eagerness for him to come, they might start to follow some false teachers. Now this warning against false prophets um, 
it's just a continuation of God's warning against false prophets that he gives in the Old Testament. And just one example of this, Jeremiah 29, 8, um, where it says, Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. And I thought that kind of little thing was interesting at the end. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. To indicate that when, we, when it comes to following false teachers and false prophets, we can kind of be complicit sometimes because we can just kind of go to people that are saying the things that we want them to say and encouraging them in that. Um, and Jesus says, you've you got to be wary of such people. Because what these verses are telling us here is that during the period of, of the church, and especially during the lifetime of the disciples, this kind of suffering and cataclysm is going to be common throughout. But they're not indicative of Jesus' return coming. Um, it's not indicating anything that's imminent. By the time we get to verse 14, we see what is determinant of, determinative of, of, of Jesus' return. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. So we think about all the missionary work and all of that. And then the end will come. So the return of Christ is hinging on the completion of the work of evangelism, of, of sharing the gospel with all of the world. And this, is, this goes along with things that Jesus has already told his disciples in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 10, 18, he says, On my account you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. And then by the time we get to chapter 28, we hear about this commission of where Jesus is telling them to go and make disciples of all nations. So all that's got to take place first before Jesus returns. So the first part of Jesus' response here lets his disciples know what they should expect and what they should do on the whole. And we've got, I've got three things here, the gist of what Jesus is saying. is One, expect suffering. Two, don't follow false messiahs. And three, preach the gospel. Jesus will return when the gospel message has saturated the world. So now turning to verses 15 uh, through 27, it's important that we remember the primary question that the disciples asked. It's really easy for us to forget those questions because they're just, Jesus provides us with so much rich detail here. But remember, Jesus said the temple would be destroyed, and the disciples want to know when that will happen, how they will know when that's happening, going to happen. So looking at verses uh, 15 through 28. Oh, I didn't get it up there. I apologize for that. So open up your, open up your Bible to uh, chapter 24 to look at verses 15 through 28. So we see in verse 15... Jesus points to a prophecy that's given by Daniel as their clue as to when this will happen. He says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through, of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. 
Now what he's referring to is the prophecy that Daniel gives in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. And there Daniel says this. Well, he records this. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and build Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, something that's kind of interesting to notice here, it talks about the anointed one being put to death. Now, the anointed one is just another word for the Messiah. This is talking about the Messiah being put to death. It seems to be looking to Jesus' death. And then we see that the, that the sanctuary and the city are going to be destroyed and that the sacrifice that is offered in the temple is going to be put to an end. And that all of this kind of is culminating in this manifestation of the abomination that causes desolation. So Jesus doesn't mention all these details from this passage here, but he's alluding to it all by talking about this abomination. Now when we look to the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 21, we see some additional details provided in his record from what Jesus says here. Luke 21, verses 23 through 24, Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right, so we've collected our details here. We've got Daniel's prophecy and everything that Jesus has said between Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. The question is, is there anything within the frame of this generation that fits the bill for what Jesus is prophesying here? When we look at the historical record, it seems to align well with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD by the Romans. Um, the Roman general... Titus, who would become uh, Caesar, uh, went to Jerusalem to put down a rebellion. And I think I've got a picture kind of depicting that siege that he brought against the city. Um, it was a terrible thing. Um, people were starving. Um, and the Jewish historian Josephus claims that by the end of all this, one million people were killed. Now, modern historians say, well, that might not be an accurate number, but let's just say it's a lot of people. It's a whole lot of people that were killed. And what's interesting is Josephus also records that after Titus overthrew the city, that thousands of Jewish people were taken from Jerusalem 
as prisoners and made slaves. They were brought back with him to Rome. Another interesting detail is that um, some early Christian historians, one of them being Eusebius, says that um, the Christians, when they saw all you know, Titus' army approaching and all this stuff happening, that they fled the city. They fled the city and went to a city called Pella. And um, in their records, they indicate that they had actually received another oracle, another um, kind of prophecy indicating that they should get out, but it also makes sense for them to get out based on what Jesus is, is saying here. They have kind of a good background to understand that when they see all this stuff happening, they should get out of town. Now, there's lots of things that are of great historical interest here. I love history, and it was very tempting for me to throw lots of extra stuff in here. Um, but I wanted to just offer you a couple of things that tie directly to the text um, that we're looking at this morning that come from Josephus. Again, jo Josephus was a Jewish historian. I've got a picture of that guy um, right there, sculpt sculpture of him. Uh, kind of in the pocket of the Roman authorities, so he, he could kind of be, um, tell a little bit of a sympathetic story. But even so, in, in the text I'm going to share with you this morning, pretty, share some pretty harsh details. So the first, and this comes from his book, The Wars of the Jews. This is what he says. The soldiers also came to the rest of the cloisters that were in the outer court of the temple, whither the women and children and a great mixed multitude of the people fled in number about 6,000. But before Caesar had determined anything about these people or given the commanders any orders relating to them, the soldiers were in such a rage that they set that cloister on fire, by which means it came to pass that some of these were destroyed by throwing themselves down headlong, and some were born in the cloisters themselves, nor did any one of them escape with his life. You've seen all, all 6,000 of these people died, and they were up on top of the temple, and they threw themselves down and were killed. Why this all happened, he says, a false prophet was the, was the occasion of these people's destruction, who had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to get upon the temple and that they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. Now there was then a great number of false prophets, suborned by the tyrants to impose on the people, who denounced this to them, that they should wait for deliverance from God. And this was in order to keep them from deserting, and that they might be buoyed up above fear and care by such hopes. Now a man that is in adversity does easily comply with such promises. For when such a seducer makes him believe that he shall be delivered from those miseries which oppress him, then it is that the patient is full of hopes of such his deliverance. Thus were the miserable people persuaded by these deceivers. And such as belied God himself, while they did not attend nor give credit to the signs that were so evident, and did so plainly foretell their future desolation, but like men infatuated without either eyes to see or minds to consider, did not regard the denunciations that God made to them. So a lot of words there, but the, the gist of it, of it is this, is that the suffering of this people was increased because they followed false prophets. They said, get on top of the temple and God's going to deliver you. They were not delivered. Remember what Jesus has been warning his disciples here. He says, do not follow these false messiahs, these false prophets. Now, the leaders of this whole rebellion would have been kind of positioning themselves, maybe not as the messiah, but as kind of messianic figures, you know, resisting the Romans. 
Jesus says, don't go with them. Destruction's going to come on them. And it's interesting because Josephus even indicates here that the people had been receiving signs at this time that God's judgment was coming upon the city, but they were ignoring them. The second text that I want to share with you relates specifically to the abomination of desolation. Now, obviously, after they've destroyed the temple, the Jews are no longer offering sacrifices there. But there was one last sacrifice that was going to be made in the temple structure. Um, and that would amount to an abomination. This is what Josephus says. He says, And now the Romans, upon the flight of the seditious into the city, and upon the burning of the holy house itself, so the temple, and of all the buildings round about it, brought their ensigns to the temple, and set them over against its eastern gate. And there did they offer sacrifices to them, and there did they make Titus imperator with the greatest acclamations of joy. So what's being described here is a pagan sacrifice. These are Roman ensigns. Now, it's difficult for us to think about like, why people would worship these, but the Roman soldiers did. There was no like, strict separation between religion and military. and all. It was all blended together. And even the Caesars themselves were worshipped as divine. And so after they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple, they bring their ensigns into the temple and they make sacrifices to them. It's an utter abomination. So if you're a Jewish person, you can imagine this is about as bad as it gets. And maybe at this time, You'd expect that Jesus would return, that there'd be some kind of intervention here. But that's not what we see Jesus say here. He just continues to offer more warnings about false messiahs. Verses 27 through 28, he says, referring to his final return, he says, For as the lightning comes from the east as visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there's a carcass, there the vultures will gather. So when Jesus actually does return, you won't be able to miss it. You'll know it when you, because he will be there. This brings us to the last set of verses, 29 through 35. And it's important for us to not read these verses in isolation from everything um, before. And we need to be on the lookout um, for some nuanced details to keep things clear. So again, recall the original questions that the disciples asked. When will this happen, the destruction of the temple? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And I'll just give a little spoiler. Next week we're going to dip in a little bit more to that end of the age piece in verse 36. Because Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour. So that number two gets dealt a little bit more with next week. But looking at these verses here, Jesus says that immediately after the stress of those days, that there's going to be all these signs in the heavens. Now, when we're talking about after the distress of those days, it's a little bit difficult to locate whether he's talking about the things that are happening leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem or after the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, but what he says is that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky 
and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, when we go to the first century, we don't see a record of those things happen. We do see Josephus talk about um, some various astronomical signs occurring, um, which is interesting, and maybe this is what Jesus is, is talking about. He talks about a star that looks like a sword appearing over the city, a comet appearing in the sky over the course of a year. So maybe there's something to that. Um, but we also have reason to believe that the use of these astronomical images is intended to be symbolic of there being a shakeup in the powers of this world. Um, and if we go to the Old Testament, we can see how this kind of language can be employed for that purpose. In Ezekiel 32, verses uh, 2, and then going down verses 5 through 8, um, there's this prophecy given against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Son of man, take up a lament concerning Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you are like a lion among the nations. And then it gets down to verses 5 through 8. It says, I will, and this is God speaking, I will spread your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your remains. I will drench the land with your flowing blood all the way to the mountains, and the ravines will be filled with your flesh. I will snuff you out. I will cover the heavens and darken their scars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you. I'll bring darkness over your land, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, when you're looking at that language about like the ravines being filled up with flesh and all this kind of stuff, we can't take it at a literal face value. We understand that there's some hyperbole that's being employed here to indicate that everything that the Pharaoh's relying on in terms of his gods, and a lot of that correlates with the astro, you know, with the, the powers in the sky and all, all, all of this. God's saying, there's no hope for you. I'm covering it all up. You're doomed. And so if I was going to give kind of a modern example of maybe how, how this kind of language is used, I would say, you know, when I say that the world's going to be turned upside down, no one thinks that I'm saying that the, the, the world itself is literally going to be turned upside down. You understand that there's going to be a big shakeup. And so this is what a lot of interpreters suggest Jesus is doing here when he's talking about these signs. Now, it's not impossible that maybe there is some signs occurring in the heavens here. I don't want to exclude that, and it's fine if, if that's your interpretation of it. Um, but it's, it's important for you to consider that as a possibility here, that this is intended to be symbolic. In verse 30, it says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of the Man in heaven. Now, the significance of this seems to be drawing from um, some of the language that's employed in the Old Testament when it talks about God raising a banner for the nations. In Isaiah 11, 12, it says, He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Um, in Isaiah 49, 22, he says, See, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up my banners to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. Um, and it also kind of reminds us of what Jesus says when he will be raised up, that he'll draw all people to himself. Now, when he says that in John chapter 12, John says that he's referring to his crucifixion. And that doesn't seem what's being indicated here, but the idea is of Jesus drawing all people to himself, and that this sign is representative of his power. Um, in verse 30, it says, 
Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So this, again, this kind of relates to the sign in terms of understanding what's going on here. Now when we see the words, Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, we think, all right, the final return. Jesus is coming back. Um, and so at this point, we have to take a close look at the language that Jesus is, is using here. Because remember, by the time we get to verse 34, Jesus says all this is happening in his generation. We know that he doesn't come back in the first century. So what's a different possible meaning for his words here that he's coming with the clouds? Well, I've shown this to you before um, as we've been going through Matthew, but we need to see it again. Um, when we look at the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, 13, Daniel has this vision. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And notice the direction of the coming there. It's not the Son of Man coming down to earth. It's him coming to the Ancient of Days. It's like coming into heaven. And that pairs pretty well with what we know happens to Jesus. He's crucified, he's buried, he raised again, and then he sends into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so in the language of, of Daniel, one would say that he is coming with the clouds in this authority. And this pairs well with other comments that Jesus makes with this kind of coming in the Gospels of um, Matthew and Mark. In Matthew 26, 64, um, Jesus, in, in telling and responding to the religious leaders who are putting him on trial, he says, But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he's saying that they will see this, but obviously he doesn't return in their lifetime. But what he's referring to is their, his, this authority that he's going to assume in his ascension. In Mark 9.1, he says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. But Jesus is telling, again, his audience, this generation, that you're going to see the kingdom come in power. You're seeing this coming, but it's not Jesus' final return. There's something else that's happening that's significant in this age. And Jesus is assuming this authority and everything that's going to happen out of that. Same thing is being said in Matthew 16, 28. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then on that piece about mourning, um, this piece about how the people will mourn as he, as he comes, this is in fulfillment of the prophecy that's given in Zechariah 12.10, where God says through the prophet, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, so of seeking God. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So what's being envisaged here is the people coming to God in repentance because they see that they crucified the Son of God. They crucified Jesus. We move on to verse 31, and again, this is, this is another verse where we have to 
take a close look at the language as we consider everything else that we've covered here. Jesus says, And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So again, we're kind of like, all right, Jesus is coming back. He's, he's bringing everyone together. Pump the brakes. Go back earlier in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 40 through 49. We see how the end is described in similar terms, but it's focused on the evil being weeded out. Matthew 13, it says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So there's a difference between this gathering of the saints and the weeding of the evil. And when we think about that word angels, there's a little bit of a difficulty in translation here because it could be referring to the powers of angels as they attend those who are going out to the earth with the gospel to gathering God's elect in that sense. It also could just be referring to human missionaries because the word angelos in the Greek simply means messenger. And that's the role that the, you know, the spiritual angels, that's the role that they often fill. They are often messengers of God. But that term angelos could also be referred to as a human messenger as well. But all in all, what I believe is being referred to here is the going out of the gospel and people being drawn to Jesus through the preaching of the word. And remember what we read in verse 14. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So this has to happen first. The messengers have to be sent to all four corners of the globe. They have to go to all people. And then the end will come. Something also just worth noting is when we talk about trumpets, um, and especially when we're talking about the apocalypse, when we go into Revelation, there's lots of trumpets. Um, when we're looking at the seven angels in Revelation 11, it talks about the seventh angel sounding his trumpet. And then there were loud voices in heaven, um, which say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, it seems like a pretty strong declaration, like maybe the end has, has come, God's kingdom is established on earth, but in the very next chapter, we see that same declaration made in Revelation 12.10. It says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of, of his Messiah. But then the rest of those verses, it talks about the devil being cast out of heaven and of persecution. So it's not quite the end. Again, it more matches up, it matches up better with Jesus ascending and then everything playing out on earth in terms of the church and the persecution that they're experiencing. So Jesus does receive all this kingdom power and authority that matches up with him coming with the clouds, but doesn't indicate his final return. Now Jesus says that we should view these things as kind of the signs of uh, of a tree beginning to sprout leaves, of, of, of a fig tree, its fruit beginning to bud. 
And he says we should look at these signs as, you know, of the summer being near. Um, now, in, this ter- in the terms used here, summer is obviously referring to the end, to Jesus' actual return. Now, notice, though, that these signs don't indicate that the summer is here. It's just that it's approaching. And when we look at these last verses here, and we look at compare it with the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark, we see that they all record the same thing. Luke 2.31, he says, Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Mark says that you know that it is near. Matthew says you know that it is near. Near is different than being here. This is kind of the same framing that the Apostle John uses in his book. 1 John 2.18, he says, Dear children, this is the last hour. So we are living in the last hour. But we know that there's time remaining. The hour isn't up. Um, all, there's still all this stuff going on. The wars, rumors of wars, all of this. All the signs. Jesus coming with the clouds. The elect being gathered. But there's still time left. And so when Jesus says in verse 34 that this generation will see all this stuff happen, He's not making any mistake because he's only talking about the birth pains. He's only talking about the last hour. He didn't say that they would live to see his second coming. Jesus has more to say about all this in the following verses that we'll cover next week. But we close here with a reminder that he gives his disciples in verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He's echoing God's word as it's given in Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 10. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Humans like grass wither. But God's word endures forever. Jesus is reminding his disciples. He's reminding us that we need to put our trust in him. When we are blasted with the heat of the sun, when all of the disasters and wars and persecution that Jesus talks about here surround us, it's easy for us to cling to a false messiah, to mere human beings who promise they can deliver us, that they can save our country, that they can save the world. But their word means nothing. It's as weak as grass. Jesus is calling us to trust him through the storm, to trust him through the tumult. Everything is happening as expected, just as it did with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. 
We remain in the last hour. We remain in the birth pains that have struck again and again since that time. The kingdom is near, but is not yet here. The end is still to come. There's work to be done. The world still needs to hear the gospel. We're still called to lift our voice, declaring to the world, here is your God. How will we know when this work is complete? We'll know it's complete when Jesus does return. When we are embraced by the warmth of the summer sun and the fruit is ripe on the tree. Let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you for the wisdom that which you've given us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who has counseled us as to what we should expect in the times in which we are living, from the time of his immediate disciples to we who continue to live today. Father, as we go through this world, it's, it's very for, easy for us to become distressed and alarmed by all the things that are going on. But Father, help us to remember that Jesus is still yet to come. Protect us, Father, from false prophets and messiahs that would deceive us and lead us to, to, astray, Father. And rather than trying to just survive, Father, and uh, huddle together. Give us the boldness and courage to go forth to the world with the gospel. Because we know from what Christ has told us that this is what you've called us to. And that is only when that work is complete that your son will come again. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness and reliability of your word, which has proven itself even through the terrible destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. May these signs, Father, point more and more people to your Son so that they may see that he is truly the King of kings. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.